I had to keep reminding myself this uh, week as I've been preparing for this lesson that I'm only trying to give an overview of what's going on in Romans because I have so much wanted to get to just get deep in, in here and uh, the text almost demands that you get into it and spend a lot of time but we're going to try to uh, stay on schedule and we're going to pick up in uh, just give a a quick, we started out in Romans chapter 1. Of course, Romans chapter 1 gives us the um, uh, kind of the key verse that we see in Romans chapter 1 and 16 and 17, which Romans 1 16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, in the good news, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous or the just shall live by faith. And that's, we mentioned two key verses for the book of Romans, these verses and then the verses over in Romans chapter 15. And we said that the, the key phrase of the book of Romans is the righteousness of God how mankind, Jew and Gentile, are made right with God. And Paul wrote the book of Romans probably primarily for the reason of dealing with the conflict of you have Jews that have had the law, but now they've come to faith in Christ, along with Gentiles who had lived in pagan nations with, with pagan cultures, and now they have come together to try to live as one in this new community of faith that we call the church. And Paul is dealing with a lot of theological issues leading up in the first part of, of the book of Romans. And then once we get past in chapter 12 to the end of the book, he deals with a lot of the relational issues that this Jewish community and the Gentile community are trying to deal with. Uh, and But the union that they have is not based on their past, is not based upon their cultures, it's based upon that they have both come to Christ through Jesus, and they've both been made righteous by what Jesus has done for them by faith through the Holy Spirit. So Paul sets out that introduction in the first 17 verses of chapter 1 of Romans. He spends the rest of chapter 1 in Romans condemning all of those who have lived in this pagan world that is filled with sin under its influences. The chief sin that he mentions is the sin of idolatry, that they have replaced the creator with the creation and began to worship the creation, which led to all kinds of sinful behavior. Then in chapter 2, he turns his attention to those who are more religious than those in chapter 1, who were more moral than those in chapter 1, and to those who were trying to follow the law and gain righteousness through their own self-efforts. And he starts out in chapter 2 by saying, Now you who judge those who are out in the world, be very careful how you judge. Because if you turn the tables back to you, you would find that you do the same things. And he turns his attention to the law and he says, You who are trying to keep the law, you break the law. And therefore, when you break the law, you are no better than those who are out in the world. And I want to read a couple of verses that I did not highlight last week in Romans chapter 2, uh, verse number 17. Romans chapter 2 and verse number 17. 
He says in Romans 2.17, Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, and he continues this, if you have, if you have. But I want you to notice in verse 17 that he's talking to those who are of Jewish descent who have the law. Now if you look down in verse number 21, he says, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Do you not preach against, uh, you who preach against stealing, do you not steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Um, so he goes on to condemn them by their own law. If you look in verse number 25, he tells these Jewish people in verse number 25 of Romans chapter 2, circumcision has no value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you have not been circumcised. You have become as one who is outside of God's covenant. So he's telling them that, that their right of circumcision and their, their law and their traditions does not gain them any access or additional favor with God. Now, if you look down in verse number 28 of chapter 2, and this is where Paul really gets in trouble. This is why a lot of Jewish people persecuted Paul and wanted him dead. He says this in verse number 28. A person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew or a true Jewish person who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. So he really causes a stir with that line. If you want to be, a, because Jewish people was more than ethnicity. It was a people of faith. They were the people of God. They were God's chosen people to shine forth his light into all the world. But he says, you can't rest in the fact that you're a Jew because of your heritage or because of your circumcision or by you keeping the law. He said, those things are external. He said, a true person of God is one who has circumcision of the heart, who has come to Christ by faith. So he really causes a stir uh, through his language there. Then we saw in chapter 3 that both he concludes chapters 1 and 2 with whether you're a Jewish person trying to keep the law and being moral, or whether you are a person who has come out of the pagan society and idolatry, all stand guilty before God. We have all sinned and fallen short of the righteousness of God, there is no hope for us in our own goodness. There is no hope for us in our own religious works or acts. We are all condemned before God. So he says, where is hope? He said, well, the good news is righteousness, apart from the law, has been revealed and is revealed through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And whether you're a Jew or Gentile, we come to faith in Jesus. We come to righteousness the same way, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ by a working of the Spirit. And then in chapter 4, we kind of left off at chapter 4, so we'll pick up there in Romans chapter 4. In Romans chapter 4, he gives the example, and he goes back to Abraham, the father of the faith. Now, God called Abram out of his country, away from his kindred, and he was going to make a great nation out of him, and he was going to bless him and make his name great. And through Abram, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Well, we know through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob came this nation of Israel. But I want us to see how Paul uses this example of Abraham to prove his point that true justification is not by law-keeping, 
True justification is by faith. So he says in Romans chapter 4, verse 1, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered about this matter? What did he think about justification and how to be right with God and righteousness? He says, in fact, Abraham, he says, if in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Verse 4. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift. If you do a, a day's work and you get a day's wage, well, that wasn't a gift. That was something you earned. He says, not as the one who, now as the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trust God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. And then he appeals back to David in verse 6. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And he quotes, Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. So he goes back to Abraham, who was the father of the faith, and then he appeals even back to David, and their own scriptures testify of justification and righteousness by faith. But then he says in verse number 9, and this is the point, this is one of the major points that Paul is trying to get to. Verse number 9 says, Is this blessedness only for the circumcised? Is it only for the Jews? Or is it for the uncircumcised? Is it for the Gentiles as well? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to righteousness. Then he asked the question, under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised? Because he was circumcised. But was this righteousness, did it come after he was circumcised or before he was circumcised? And Paul answers, it was not after he was circumcised, but it was before he was circumcised. So before he received the sign of circumcision, identifying him with a Jewish person as the covenant of God, it says when he was uncircumcised, he was credited by faith, which shows that Abraham, a Jewish person who God called out, was right with God, but he was made right with God before his circumcision, showing that the Gentiles who were uncircumcised outside of the covenant could now be a part of the people of God. So the whole book of Romans, again, is really about the inclusion of those outside of the Abrahamic covenant, those outside of the Mosaic covenant coming in and receiving righteousness. Now we're going to skip down and we're going to turn our attention to uh, chapters 5 through 8. And this is a large portion of Scripture for, for us to undertake in, in one sitting, but we are going to try our very best. Uh, we see on page, if you have a book, on page 58, about chapter 5, if you see the, uh, the second or the third paragraph, Paul's response on page 58. It may be at the top of your page if you have a individual sheet. But Paul's response to this good news of justification by faith is to burst into confessional rhapsody, urging all his readers to enter into peace with God and to boast rejoice in their hope and in their suffering since we have experienced God's love in Jesus Christ. So he looks at the first 11 verses 
of chapter 5. And since justification is on the basis of God's initiative and God's doing, that means we have full reconciliation with God. And what you'll notice in the first 11 verses of chapter 5 is you'll notice this war and peace language. You have peace with God. It talks about when we were enemies of God. It talks about how we are reconciled with God. All of humanity has stood as enemies of God since Adam's fall. And what we have needed with God, what all of humanity has needed with God, is to be reconciled in relationship with God. Sin has separated us. It broke the relationship between God and man. And what is needed is for the enemies of God, that peace come into that relationship. And reconciliation happening. And Paul goes into that because of justification by faith, because of what Abraham shows us of how we are right with God, he says in chapter 5 and verse number 1, therefore, chapter 5 verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace wherein we stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. So we were separated from God, we've been reconciled. We had enmity with God, now we have peace with God. And today you and I have peace with God through what Jesus has done for us, when he reconciled us by his death. Picking up in verse number 6 of chapter 5. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless or still weak or still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Uh, Just think about those words. Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't die for the religious. He didn't die for the good enough. He didn't die for the holy ones. He didn't die for the Baptists. He died for the ungodly. Then it says, Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, some might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So He's giving us the hope of the gospel. He says in verse number 9 of chapter 5, Since we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved or delivered from God's wrath through him? For if while we were, when we were God's enemies, you know, the scripture never says God was our enemy. It says we were God's enemies. While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. Here's the amazing thing. You were reconciled to God before you were even born. All sinners were reconciled to God. Peace made peace. God made peace with fallen humanity through the death of Christ. Being justified by his blood, we should be saved from wrath through him. For when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled by the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Christ died for everybody. Christ's death was universal in scope. 
He died for the sins of the world. He was the propitiation, not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. Christ died for everybody. Humanity took part in the death of Christ, but not everybody lives in Christ. We're going to see this. Much more have been reconciled. We shall be saved through his life. Not only, verse 11, is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus, whom we have now received reconciliation. And then he goes into this discussion of Adam and Christ. The whole Bible is about two men, Adam and Christ. Every human being is in one of two places. They're either in Adam or in Christ. All of humanity is represented in one of two people. Either humanity is represented in Adam, which represents a lost, sinful nature, or is represented by Christ through righteousness and life. So what we see here, if you'll notice on your, on your page, on page 58, part two begins as part one did. Part two begins with chapters 5, verses 12 with the universal scope of human sinfulness. But this time he goes all the way back to Adam in order to point out the equality or the equally universal scope. So this is going past Abraham, and now we're going back to Adam. And what verses 12 through 21 of chapter 5 does is it contrasts Adam and Christ. Adam sinned and got us all in trouble. Christ was righteous and got us out of trouble. Through Adam came sin and death. Through Christ came life and righteousness. And the whole point is, Christ undid what Adam did. So let's read verses 12 through 21. I want to read the whole thing first, and then I've got a little chart on the TVs that will show you. But Romans chapter 5, verse number 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, sin came in the world through one man, and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world. He, he kind of goes off on a little side note here in the next few verses, but he says, To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not charged against anyone's account, or there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. But the gift, that's the gift of righteousness, is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more, and you'll notice that language, much more, did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the man Jesus Christ overflow to the many. Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through the one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as 
Though the, just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the disobedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I don't know if there's a more favorite passage of Scripture than that one for me. That is just an amazing passage of Scripture. And it gives power to what Jesus did. It gives power to the death of Jesus. Because we give so much credit to, to our sin. We give so much credit to Adam. We give so much credit to our sinful nature. And we fail to see that what Jesus did was greater than what Adam did. That the sin of Adam is no match for the grace of Jesus Christ. And as we look in this passage, I want to show us just kind of a breakdown of, um, of kind of what's going on. Through one man, that is Adam, death and sin entered. Through another man, that is Jesus, righteousness and life entered. So we see the comparisons here in verse 15. Through the sin of Adam... And through sin, many died. But through Jesus, Jesus is on the, the right-hand side in the yellow. The gift of grace was to the many. In verse 16, there was judgment that brought condemnation. But in Jesus, there was a gift that brought justification. In verse 17, death reigned over people because of sin. And in verse 17, people reign not in death but in life. Verse 18, the sin brought condemnation for all. But also in verse 17, justification and life for all came through Jesus. Verse number 19, many were made sinners. But also in verse 19, many will be made righteous. In verse 20, the law was given so that the sin would increase. But yet also in verse 20, where sin increased, grace increased even more. In verse 21, sin reigned in death. But also in verse 21, grace reigns to eternal life. So I just want you to look at that and take in. That's what Jesus has brought into our lives. Those of us who have come to him by faith. Those of us who we no longer identify with Adam. We no longer are held and trapped by the sin that Adam brought into this world. We have been set free from that. God has taken that out of the way through Jesus Christ. And the sin that stood before us, where we became enemies of God, the sin that, that came before us, where we were under His wrath, the sin that, that was in us that, that identified us with the fallen condition of humanity, for the believer, it is gone. And we have received what Jesus has done for us. So a couple of things that I want to, to point out in chapter 5, verse 12. Uh, you know, the universal effects of God's righteousness. Greater than the effects of what Adam did. And um, in verse number 12 of chapter 5, it may not point this out in our English translations, but in the Greek there is what is called the definite article before the word sin and death. So in, if you pick up a Young's literal translation or you look at the, the Greek text, verse number 12 reads, Therefore, just as the sin, there's a definite article, the sin, 
entered the world through one man, and the death through the sin. So there was something that is Paul's dealing with in here called the sin and the death. Not just sins we do, I stubbed my toe and said a bad word, but there's something called the sin. And the sin is this sinful condition of mankind. It is a state of sin that mankind is in through what Adam did for all of us. So there is this condition of sin that makes us or made us enemies of God, which brought about the wrath of God on us. And that is what's identified as the sin. We identify with the fall of Adam. And many people go back to that and point as that as what is called original sin. Because we didn't become sinners because we, oops, did something wrong one day. We were born into this world and inherited sin. Inherited a, 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 a fallen condition in this world that can only be remedied by what Jesus has done for us. So the sin is the fallen condition of mankind that separated us from God, that brought enmity with God and brought us under the wrath of God. The death is also a spiritual condition. Death simply means a separation. You know, for the Christian, death is a separation of soul and spirit from body, where the soul and spirit and the body separate, and the soul and spirit go to be with God, and the body goes to the ground. Death for the Christian is not a cease to exist. It's a separation. Therefore, death came in, and we are all in spiritual death. Ephesians chapter 2 says, While we were dead in our sins and in our trespasses, God made us alive in Christ. So we have this separation. There is this spiritual death. So the sin brought the death that separated us all from God and brought us under wrath. So what happened? Jesus came. And the sin that caused many to die, that brought judgment to condemnation, that reigned through death, that brought condemnation for all, that made us sinners, a condition of sin, a state of sin, a being of sin, the law came in and that increased even more and sin reigned in, in death. That is the sin. But if we've received righteousness by faith, that no longer defines us. We are no longer under the sin. That's been taken out of the way. Hence, sins have been forgiven. And we have been brought to newness of life in Jesus Christ where we receive the gift of grace and we've been justified. We have peace with God. That peace with God means God is no longer angry. He's no longer holding our sin and judgment over us because we have peace with God through Jesus Christ because we were crucified with Him. And that's when we go into chapter 6. Chapter 6 begins, I'm reading out of an, an NIV and NIV says, what shall we say? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? Uh, King James, New King James, ESV, I, I don't really like that phrasing. Shall we go on sinning? Um, the other translations say, shall we continue in sin? It's going back to the same concept of the state of, of sin and separation and death. 
So I'm going to use that phrase when I read this. What shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may increase or abound? And Paul says, by no means. I'm in chapter 6, verse 2. By no means. We are those who have died to sin. You have died to the thing that called you a sinner. We are not a sinner saved by grace. You were a sinner. You were identified with the sin of Adam and spiritual death. You were a sinner. You have been saved by grace. Now you are righteous and a saint of God because you have been taken out of the condition of sinful humanity that was enmity with God and brought wrath and spiritual death and separation, and you've been brought into life. And you've been made new. Why? Because you died. The old you died. The sinner you died. The one that was separated from God died. And he shows us this in the form of baptism. So as we, uh, on page 58 it says, Paul then takes up the issue of sins, given that sin, has, you may say, well, if, if we're not sinners, why do we still sin? There's this thing called flesh. There's this thing called we still live in a fallen world and we have this flesh to deal with. Your spirit, your rebirth nature does not sin. Your spirit man is perfect. It is born again, holy and righteous, but we still live in this flesh-filled world that appeals to the desires of this flesh. But God, you are not in the category of a sinner separated from God. You have been reconciled, justified, saved, and born again as a child of God. So Paul takes up the issue of sins given that sin itself has been taken care of through the death and resurrection of Christ. And he uses three analogies in chapter 6 and 7. He uses the analogies of death, burial, and resurrection. He uses the analogy of slavery and freedom and death in marriage and concludes by urging that we die to the old flesh and die to the law and live in the newness of Christ and in the Spirit. So he starts out in chapter 6, and he says these words, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. We've died to sin. How can we live any longer therein? So Paul says, why should that sin keep control our lives? It shouldn't because we've died to that sin. Or do you not know that as many of us, who were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. See, Christ didn't just die for you. He died your death. You died with him. You were buried with him. And when we receive his life, we are raised and share in his resurrection life. Or do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? The old you is gone. The old man is dead. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too may live a new life or raised to walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, 
We will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. Now, was Paul on the cross with Jesus? No, absolutely not, not physically. But he said, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but it's Christ that lives in me. So the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. And one of the things I love about this passage, I hope it works out this way looking in, in this Bible, but here are these key phrases. What happened to you in Christ is true. But I want you to notice a little word that Paul puts in here two or three times that is very critical. And he starts out in it's the verse number three of chapter six. Or don't you know? See, many Christians are still struggling with condemnation and death and thinking they're still sinners and judgment because they don't know what happened to them in Christ. They don't know that they died with Christ. They don't know that now peace has been made with God through Jesus Christ. Peace doesn't depend on what I do. It depends on what Jesus has done. So he says, or don't you know? What you don't know in the Christian life can hurt you. It can cause you to live in such a way that God never intended. So he wants them to know the truth of what happened to them on the cross with Jesus and in his death, burial, and resurrection. For we are partakers of that if we are in Christ. Or do you not know? And then he says in verse 6, For we know that our old self is crucified with him. We know that our old self. Because anyone, verse 7, because anyone who's died has been set free from sin. Now, if we die with Christ, we believe that we shall live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has any mastery over him. The death he died to sin, he died once for all. But the life he lives, he lives unto God. That's a very important passage, and I want to. So I want to correct something that's commonly said. I hope, I hope to give a a better hope to this. But the old saying that I heard growing up many, many, many times, and I still hear today, is that we need to die to sin daily. That every day we have to get up and die to sin, crucify our flesh, die to sin, crucify our flesh. If you want to try that, you can try that. But you're trying in vain because somebody's already taken care of that for you. Paul did say, I die daily, but you have to read the context. When Paul said, I die daily, Paul was speaking in a physical sense. Paul was saying, because of persecution I face for preaching the gospel, I face death daily through persecution. Paul was not talking about a spiritual death. So I want, you, and so I want us to see the, the better truth of dying daily. Now, should we be living in the spirit daily, which causes us to overcome this flesh daily? Absolutely. But... If it's, in, if it's, again, in my mentality, I have to die to sin every day, it tells me, number one, I'm not, I haven't received the death that I had in Christ. I still see myself as identifying with Adam and not with Christ. So he says here, I knew I wouldn't get past this chapter. I knew I wouldn't. 
So Jesus is the example. Jesus is the pattern son. So he's going to first talk to us about Jesus. So let's go back to verse number 8. Now, if we died with Christ, which we did if we received him, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin how many times? Once. He died to sin once for all. He's not going to die again. He's not going back to the cross. He's not still on the cross. He died as a sacrifice for sin, took our sin upon him, and died one death. And because he died, he cannot die again, and death no longer has any mastery over him. He died once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Now notice verse 11. In the same way, just like Jesus died to sin once, and now that he lives, he lives for God, or lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin. Not dying to sin. Count yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We don't have a sin problem. Jesus took our sin. We have a problem of not walking in the Spirit, having received what Christ has done for us. So you're not trying to kill the sin in your life. If you do that, you'll spend every day trying to kill the sin in your life. You'll spend every day just trying to be good enough. You'll spend every day trying to conquer. You'll spend every day trying to do something that you can never do, but Jesus has already done for you. The call to the Christian life is not to die to sin. The call to the Christian life is to receive the light, the, the death that Jesus died for us, to consider ourselves dead to sin. But the key to the Christian life is to walk every day in the Spirit. For the Bible says this. The Bible says that if you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. It didn't say try not to fulfill the lust of the flesh and then walk in the Spirit. It says walk in the Spirit. Be Spirit-minded. Be conscious of what Christ has done for you. Be conscious that your death was His death. You are not in Adam and nothing on the left-hand side applies to you. Everything on the right-hand side applies to you. Now that you've received that, don't go back and try to do what Christ has already done for you. Now that you've received what He's done, now walk from there. I often tell people as a Christian life, we don't start at zero and try to get up to 100. We're not trying to start as bad people and trying to work up to see as good as we can get. No, we start at 100. And we go on from there, living the life of the Spirit that God has for us. But many Christians are still trying to die to sin daily, but they've yet failed to realize that Christ has already done that. And we are to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive unto God. Therefore, just as Paul said, knowing that we're dead to sin and saying we're dead to sin doesn't give us a license to go out and live contrary to the Spirit. That's not what that's for. We don't understand it if that's our mentality. But we consider ourselves dead to sin so that every day we can walk in the Spirit, live in the Spirit, produce the fruits of the Spirit, operate in the gifts of the Spirit, and go out and live a Spirit-filled life. So he says, in the same way, count yourselves dead unto sin. And when we count ourselves dead unto sin, he says, when we were in sin, when we were in this left-hand column, when we were in sin, we were slaves to sin. It controlled us. It was our master. 
but it says, now that you've switched from the left-hand column to the right-hand column, now that you're righteous, now we become slaves of righteousness. Now we yield our members as instruments of righteousness. So a sinful identity produces sinful behavior. A righteous identity should produce a righteous behavior. doesn't matter how we live. It absolutely matters how we live. We're to live out of who we are. But the challenge is not to see ourselves who we were in Adam, but who we are in Christ. So the rest of chapter 6, he uses the, the mentality or he uses the example of coming out of slavery of sin and coming and yielding and becoming slaves of righteousness. Chapter 7, and um, we'll just briefly glance over chapter 7. <laughs> I have to force myself to briefly pass over chapter 7. I, I thought about releasing like kind of like addendums to this and come in here and just record everything else I wanted to say that I didn't say. But um, chapter 7, he goes back and he deals with the law, this issue of the law. Uh, and he begins, we know he's talking about the law because of chapter 7, verse 1. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law. So he's dealing primarily with the Jewish people, and he's using the example of a marriage covenant, that under the law, a marriage covenant is broken when one party dies. So he says, I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone as long as that person lives. Um, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he's alive, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law uh, that binds her to him. Um, verse number four. So, my brothers and sisters, you also, you didn't just die to sin or the sin of Adam, you died to the law, which increases the sin and again brings you under condemnation. You also died to the law through the body of Christ. Again, you didn't die through your own efforts, you died through the body of Christ so that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. So Paul's using that example again of, of death, the death with Christ sets us free from the condemnation of the law. Uh, he goes on through uh, chapter 7, down in verse number um, 14 is this great struggle, and I mentioned this on a Sunday morning a few months back, where Paul says, you know, I, I want to do good, but I end up doing bad, and what I don't do is what I do, and what I don't want to do, that's what I end up doing, and I want to do good, but I end up doing bad, and there's a struggle. Paul is not talking about the struggle of the Christian life. That is not the struggle of the Christian life. Paul is talking about the struggle of him trying to keep the law, and him trying to be set free through the law, because he finally gets to the end in verse 24, and he says, man, what a wretched man that I am. Everything I try to do, I don't do. The law condemns me. My sin condemns me. Everything condemns me. He says, what a wretched man that I am. And he asked, who will rescue me from this body that's subject to death? Who will rescue me from this body of sin? And he says, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who delivers me, the Lord Jesus Christ. So his answer again is going back so Slavery, he shows us in chapter 6, the issue of we were, we were slaves to sin, but now we are made slaves to righteousness. We are free from the condemnation of the law by Jesus Christ. And then going into chapter 8, he goes into life in the Spirit. Um, I was reading a commentary by a theologian named N.T. Wright, and I read something in there. This is why I love commentaries. A lot of commentaries, you know, you, you read through it, but 
you, you can find some major gems. Here's what I love. Uh, N.T. Wright, chapter 6, he equated chapter 6, 7, and 8 with the story of Israel coming out of Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt, and it was God's intention through the Passover to set them free. Chapter 6 talks about we were slaves to sin. God's intention was to set us free by his blood through the Red Sea. When they came out of Egypt, they came to Mount Sinai and they received what? The law. In chapter 7, what's Paul dealing with? The law that was given at Mount Sinai. And then he talks about in chapter 8, life in the Spirit. It was God's intention to bring them out of slavery through the wilderness and into the promised land where God would bless them. Life in the Spirit is the promised land where we live in the blessing of God. So we see here in in chapter 8, at the bottom of page 58, God's response to all of this is the law of the Spirit who fulfills the law in us stands against our sinful nature. The Spirit leads us in the present and guarantees the future. He abides with us in the midst of suffering, conforms us to Christ's likeness. So in chapter 8, I wrote down passages of Scripture on this paper and highlighted the ones I wanted to read. I highlighted every passage, every verse in all of these. In chapter 8, let's go in chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, now that he's come through this contention with the law, I don't do what I want to do, I want to do what I don't want to do, and I do what I don't want to do, all this stuff. He says, who will rescue me? Jesus Christ. Now he goes into, therefore, there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit gives us life and has set us free from the law of of sin and the death. The Spirit has set us free. Christ has redeemed us. He's reconciled us. He's made us friends of God, not enemies of God. And therefore, in Him there is no condemnation. And the law of the Spirit sets us free. We've moved totally from the left-hand column to the right-hand column. He says in verse 3, For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so He condemned sin in the flesh. Sin has been condemned. Sin condemned you when you were in Adam. But now that you're in Christ, God has condemned sin. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live after the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And here's where the change comes in. Here's where we practically work this out of our lives, verse number five. The key, I've often said this, we are justified by grace through faith. But there are many people justified by grace through faith, but yet they still live like they're not. We're saved by grace through faith, but Romans 12 tells us we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. How do we renew our mind? These verses tell us. Verse number five. Those who live according to the flesh. You see, the sin has been done away with, but we still have this flesh wherein leads to sins that we do. But these sins have been done away with, but we still have this flesh. But it says those who live according to the flesh, they live that way because they have their minds 
set on fleshly desires. If our minds are set on fleshly desires, we will follow those fleshly desires. But he says, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. So if you look at your life and say, I'm not getting the results of my life I want to get, I would ask the question, where is your mind most of the time? Is it set on the Spirit? Is it set on spiritual things? Are you dwelling on the Spirit? Are you, are you constantly in prayer and communication with the Spirit, asking wisdom and help from the Spirit? Or is your mind on the things of this flesh and the things of this world and the, the worries and cares? For what your mind is on determines what the results you are going to get. Your mind sows seeds. See, your mind is a garden where you sow seeds and your life reaps what you sow. So those are living according to the flesh. They're living that way because that's where their mind is. Those that are living in the Spirit are living that way because that's where their mind is. Their minds are being renewed. Verse number 6, The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, neither can it. But those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. But then he says this, I like this in verse number 9. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh. Because he set us free from that too. The power of that. It no longer has to have dominion over you. He says, but you are not in the realm of the flesh, but you are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives on the inside of you. If anyone is not the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life. Because of right, even though we still deal with this flesh and sin, if Christ is in you, even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of the Spirit who lives in you. So He talks about the Spirit filled life is the life that is lived with a mindset on the Spirit and a mind renewed by the Spirit of God. So he talks about here how the Spirit uh, leads us in the present, how the Spirit guarantees our future. In verses 18 through 30, he's dealing with the hope and the Spirit that we have for the total redemption of the body and the total redemption of creation. Uh, They're anticipating that. Paul talks about in 18 through 30. He won't spend a lot of time there. But we'll end in 31 through the end of the chapter, and he says this. This is a familiar passage to us. What then shall we say in response to all of these things? Here's what we say. If God is for us, who can be against us? Nothing or nobody on that left-hand column to start with. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now listen to what he says. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things. Then he asks a series of questions. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? And these are rhetorical questions, and the answer is nobody. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? None. Why? Because it's God that justifies. And if God justifies us, if God justifies us no one or no other law can unjustify us. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. There's no condemnation in Christ. Because Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised to life and is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
The answer is no one. Shall tribulation, trouble, hardship, persecution, or famineness, or naked, or danger, or sword? As it's written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, he says, in all these things, trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, facing death. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And Paul says, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present nor the future, or any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a magnificent conclusion to this train of thought that he's been having. Now, think about where we were in chapters one, in chapter one. At the end of that chapter, we were all in pretty bad shape, weren't we? We were condemned. We were sinners. There is nothing good in us. There's none that does good. No, not one. Chapters one, two, and three was like, wow, I'm really horrible. (laughs) I am unredeemable. There is nothing good in me. There There is no hope for me. I can't even try to do good enough to get out of it. But look where we've come from since chapter three. We're shown that salvation comes through faith in Christ. We've seen Abraham justified by faith. We have seen in chapter 5, Adam, who condemned us totally, was overcome by the work of Jesus on the cross. We have seen in in chapter 6, when we went to chapter 6, we have seen that we have died with Christ and we've died to sin, that we can serve Christ in the newness of life. We come to chapter 7 where the law condemned us, but that can't even condemn us anymore because Christ has redeemed us from from that condemnation. Chapter 8 tells us there's no condemnation. It tells us how to live victorious in life through the Spirit of God. It gives us a hope for all of our future, and it ends with God has you tightly in His hands, and if God's for us, who can be against us, and nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. What a journey! The first eight chapters of Romans is from utter condemnation to utter justification and victory, from defeat and death to victory in life. And it all goes from when we come out of Adam and we come into Christ. So go back and read those chapters, five, six, seven, eight. Go back and read those. Pull some stuff out of those. Ask God to show you things for for your life that will encourage you and your personal journey, keeping in mind what we have seen. Um, Next week, we're going to go over the three most controversial chapters in Christianity today and for the past 500 or so years. Uh, And that is Romans 9, 10, and 11. So before you jump into that, go back and read over what we've talked about today. Get that in your heart. Get it in your spirit. See what Christ has done. Bring your mind in line with the gospel and who you are in Jesus and everything that he's done for you. Any comments or questions before we head out today?